Uh, a good place to start, I think, today's discussion, make sure my phone is off, phone's off, uh, is, um, it's a very important discussion that we're going to have today, and it's a kind of continuation of what we had in the past, even though I'm sure there's some people that I haven't heard uh, the first time we spoke about this issue, uh, and that is trying to find some evidence for the accuracy, the veracity, the historicity of the Torah. Um, now, why is that so important? Why, why can we, you know, every synagogue in the world has Torah, has a Torah scroll, and we study it, and it's, you know, the bedrock of our religion, and it's our history, and it's, it's who we are. Uh, why is it so important for us to go through a lengthy, uh, thorough, rigorous, and exhaustive analysis of the evidence to try to determine the authorship of the Torah? Uh, why is it such a hot-button topic uh, there's so much scholarship about the issue on both sides of the matter. Uh, why is it so important? Um, why can it? Why can we just you know leave it either ambiguous uh, on one hand or uh, just accept tradition on the other hand? Uh, why is it so important to un- to uh, undergo this process of trying to determine the authorship of the Torah? Um, so I want to start with maybe a, a traditional um, approach to this issue. Uh, we've mentioned. Uh, before, the idea of olam haba, uh, the world to come. Uh, this is a code word for success or failure in life um, in, in, in the Jewish sense, uh, meaning that if someone were to achieve success in life, by definition, they will have a, what's called a portion of the world to come, which means that their life has an eternal value and quality to it that this other world Whereas this world of the soul, the soul will have achieved a certain degree of greatness and perfection in this world that it'll merit to continually exist in the next world. Whatever that is, we, we discussed it in some, uh, in some, um, uh, in some capacity. Um, but that's, that's what the code word is. So it's a very important thing for us that the totality of our life will uh, sum up to being included in this class of people that are included in Olam Abba. Now, What's really nice is that as Jews, we have a head start. And the head start is that uh, the Mishnah says, Kol Yisrael Yeshlam which, as Leslie will help us, all of Israel has a portion of what to come. A small child, uh, baby, small little baby, has a portion of what to come. Now, how young do you have to be to be included in that? The Talmud, very interesting discussion, the Talmud. How young does a child have to be to be included amongst this? All of Israel's portion of what to come. And it's a very interesting Talmud. And, um, it says there's five different opinions, if I remember correctly. Uh, and I think these opinions underscore different statuses of, uh, or different stages of progression. Uh, opinion number one, the earliest opinion is conception. So think about that. A child is conceived, and even if a child's not born, or God forbid there's a miscarriage or something like that, the child, the child is already some sort of soul, and therefore it's got a portion of what to come, which is astounding. You know, well, what has the child accomplished? Absolutely nothing. Now, child is zygot, is more precise term. Um, but that's the first opinion. The second opinion is birth. Third opinion is circumcision. Fourth opinion is... Gosh, what's the fourth opinion? Uh, the fourth opinion might be where they're able to walk. And the fifth opinion uh, is when they, uh, I can't remember, is when they, when they start speaking. 
which is, to me, was interesting, like as if these are five different stages, you know, uh, conception, birth, circumcision, the first mitzvah. So there's no set agreement on which one is... Well, I, I, I think it's important, well, my, my stance on that issue is that wh- whenever we're dealing with Agarata, there's a, uh, uh, when the Talmud is split into two different, two different sections, there's Halacha, what's called Shmaitza, or Agarata. Agarata, this is a, a, um, uh, the realm of Talmud that deals with philosophy or ethics, there's never any disagreements. So the fact that there's five different opinions means that these, all five of them are true in some capacity. Um, but either way, what it tells us is that you don't really need to accomplish that much to be included amongst this special class of, because you're Jewish, you're rented a portion. Now, why, why would that be? It's a very good, very good question. Like, why, just because someone's Jewish, why do they automatically get a portion in some grand prize that is the hope and the yearning of all humanity? That's a very interesting question. But either way, as Jews, we have a significant head start in our quest, in our lifelong quest and mission to be part of that uh, special fraternity or sorority, right? Men, women, uh, Jews or non-Jews can be part, have a portion of the world to come. Uh, either way, so that's, uh, that's very important. Now, everything that we do positively uh, contributes towards our quest to achieve that. There are some things, there's a list of things that we can do that would disqualify us. And these are some of the you know, most important things to avoid as Jews because they undermine the very success and failure of our lives. And Maimonides delineates a list that he collects from all across the Talmud of people that lose their portion when it comes. So some of them are you know, the most vile sins in the world, like a murderer, for example. You know, obviously... Thankfully, none of us here fall into that category, but someone who does something so heinous, so egregious, so malicious uh, as, as committing murder, uh, they lose their portion, even if they were Jewish. Um, but most of the things are, are, are uh, you know, the things that are so out there that are not really uh, pertinent to, to, to most of us, thankfully. Um, if y'all remember, we spoke about Lashon Hara here, uh, Maimonides includes the habitual Lashon Hara speaker in that list. And one of the great questions is why would someone who speaks Lashon Hara, which seems like a fairly innocuous sin, fairly common sin, people speak gossip, you know, it's kind of common. Uh, why would the habitual Lashon Hara speaker be included in this terrible list? It's the worst list to be included upon, you know, um, because the list essentially determines that your life and it was, was a failure, um, at least from the spiritual sense. Very interesting. But either way, one of the things in the list, and that's today's discussion, or at least a, 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 the, the, the importance, the impetus for today's discussion, is Maimonides includes someone who does not believe in the divinity of the Torah. Um, so thus, we have to make sure that we do believe. I would say that you know, this maybe raises the importance of the discussion because it's very important for us to indeed believe this if we want to be included amongst the Jewish people with regards to a portion of what to come. Um, now, what does that mean to believe in the divinity of the Torah? It's a little bit more granular than that. Uh, so he breaks it down to three different subsets. Number one, the written Torah, as being uh, written by Moses, but Moses, Moses is merely the scribe. Right? God is c- telling Moses what to write, and Moses writes. So, for example, there's this book that was mentioned in this very same room, in this very same class, but someone who's not here. Um, a book called Who Wrote the Bible? It was written in 1987 or 89 by a, shockingly, by a Jew 
whose name is uh, Richard Elliot Friedman, who essentially tries to prove in the book that the, that the Torah has multiple human authors. Now, this is not his idea. Um, it's, in fact, an idea of a German, a German scholar from the uh, 19th century, or the late 19th century, by the name of Julius Wellhausen. And he uh, developed a theory called the Documentary Hypothesis. Perhaps you've heard of it. But either way, the theory, uh, the theory um, opines that there are multiple authors, or four primary authors, and then there was another guy who came and put it all together. But <coughs> does the book um, imply that Obviously, they're saying human authors, but does the book imply that there was inspiration by God? Or well, the, the book is a little bit uh, mocking of the whole notion of Moses writing it. Like, for example, the very first of all, on the, on the very first page, it like starts off with these kind of questions that are are almost it's almost it's almost laughable. Like for me, reading it, like for example, the very first page it says, "Hey, uh, the book says that Moses was the most humble of all men." Well, he doesn't was. he was right, right? But doesn't that seem to be self-contradictory? That's what, that's what he writes. So, what's that based upon? The premise? What, what false premise is that based upon? That he wrote himself. That he wrote it himself. Exactly. Right. Uh, he starts off by saying, "Well, traditionally, uh, um, Jews and Christians, everyone has accepted that Moses wrote the book." Well, yeah, really. We never accepted that. You know, he starts off with a flawed premise that Moses is the author of the book. Moses is the scribe. Moses is the typist. But Moses is not the author. So he started with false premises, which is, to me, it's mind-blowing. Like, how do you start up your book like that? You know, you ask, I, I have, you know, you ask any, 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 you know, traditional Jew or any traditional Jew from 200 years ago, uh, when the, the, rest, the whole entire Jewish people, and frankly, the entire, pretty much the Western world believes that this is written by God. Moses is just a scribe. You know, so, if you're going to start off your book with this, uh, you know, with this premise, how are we ever going to have a dialogue about so this? So this Friedman guy is probably a fairly secular guy, I assume. Uh, yeah. You know, and, okay. I would assume so. Huh? I would assume so, okay. yes. Uh, it's interesting that you, many times you have the Jews, uh, which is, I think, a very uh, in- interesting point of discussion. Why are the Jews so determined to disprove, or some of the Jews, to disprove the divinity of the Torah? Very interesting. It seems like we have some skin of the game, maybe. There's some inherent biases. Uh, but either way, let, we'll get to that in a second. To go to a very interesting point to approach. Um, either way, if, um, if someone, according to Maimonides, uh, does not believe that the written Torah was authored by God, and rather says that it's authored by Moses, and obviously any other human authorship, then he would fall into the category of someone who rejects the divinity of the Torah. I don't know anyone else, but uh, when I was in college, um, I took a class, and that was what they taught us, was the J source and the P source, and then I forget the other. That's right, there is. And that was what the book, but that was like it all. Yes, the theory, the basic rundown of the theory is that there's four sources, the J, the E, the P, and the D, and then there's the R. So basically the J um, uh, is the, well, one of the, founding principles of the documentary hypothesis uh, is the idea of, of the fact that God in the Torah is given multiple different names. Uh, we have the name, of the ineffable tetragram, tetragram name of God, the four-letter name of God. And then we have the name Elohim, right? Uh, which is another name of God. 
So the founding, the core bedrock principle of this theory is the fact that these must be two different entities because it's two different names. And therefore, um, there's the J, which is the, the, you know, the four-letter name of God. There was that book, and then there was the e-book. And then someone else came and put it all together. And then D, which is Deuteronomy, that had to be much later. Why? What's the rationale for the D being much later? Who can think of a reason? Why would Deuteronomy much, be much later? Huh? So what? But, but why does that why does there be a different author? And just a little to get in the head of someone of a secular scholar analyzing the Torah. Deuteronomy is full of predictions. Predictions that aren't are uncannily accurate. Therefore, right, a German scholar who is starting off with the presupposition that this is not divine origin, and therefore prophecy is impossible, right? Reasons that it must be from a later source. It must be after the predictions happened. Because that's the only way that someone could possibly know what would happen. And therefore, the whole book of Deuteronomy must be written after, for example, the, the Babylonian exile and the, and the reemergence of the second commonwealth of Israel. Like, that's the reasoning. Thus, D must be an entirely different book. Now, obviously, if you're starting off with the presupposition that it's not divinely authored and that prophecy is not possible, it's not possible for someone to write uh, something about what's going to be in the future. Well, if that's what you start off with, well, then of course you'll end up with, a, you, you must, there's no other way to explain it by other than saying that Deuteronomy was written afterwards. Now, what's the problem if Deuteronomy is written afterwards? Just, let's just work this out here. Let's assume Deuteronomy is written afterwards. Right? Well, that, that's the theory. If Deuteronomy is written afterwards, okay, well, the Jewish people are already scattered across the entire world, really, essentially. So then, what this means is that you have to have someone, not only the compiler or the redactor, has to now disseminate the books across the entire world. How ludicrous is that? That in ancient history, this book that's going to be so fundamental to the Jewish people is going to be uh, finished and completed after the Jewish people are scattered throughout the world. You have Jews in North Africa, Jews in, in, in Europe, Jews in the, in, in the Near East, in the Middle East, Jews in Asia Minor, Jews everywhere. And now the book is written, and now the book suddenly has to get disseminated to everyone. That's absolutely ludicrous. But that's the only way you can actually justify the fact that, that, uh, that prophecies that are predicted um, and happened, right? and the only way for you to justify if you presuppose that prophecy is not possible, then it must have been written afterwards. Well, if it's written afterwards, well, then, okay, let's, let's follow the progress of the logic along, and let's say, okay, it was written afterwards, well, then everyone's already scattered. Well, how do we get the book in the heads of millions of Jews and get them all to independently, uh, while they're all separated, they're not unified in any community or anything like that, to accept it as, as the word of God. It's pretty outrageous. Yeah. But anyway, th- that's the theory. The theory, and I'm saying the theory itself is based upon really bizarre logic, because on one hand, it is this uh, assessment of the Torah as being, uh, as being well, there's, it, there, was, there was one author who wrote the J and one who wrote, wrote, uh, author who wrote, wrote the E. So it's kind of like disjointed on one hand. On the other hand, you have this, this R, this redactor, put it all together. So it flows really nicely. So which one is it? Does it flow really nicely or is it disjointed? Right? You're starting with a presupposition and therefore that's how you'll end up toward your, towards your conclusion. Now, by the way, if you ask any, uh, any fourth grade child in Israel, 
what, and we spoke about this last, uh, last time when we met, we met when we talked about the Shema. Like, what does the four-letter name of God mean, and what does the Elohim name of God mean? Every child knows it. Why? Because it is ubiquitous across all of Jewish literature, telling us the difference between the four-letter name of God and the Elohim name of God. It's talking about different, uh, different influences that God gives us. And thus, every time it says Elohim, it's referring to God treating us in one way. And every time it's saying the name for the name of God, it's treating, God's treating us in a different way. Right? But if you don't have a sense for the nuances and the subtleties of the Torah, and you see different names, well, it must be different people. Either way. Uh, rant completed. Um, so, 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 so that's number one, written Torah. Um, if someone says that Moses wrote it by himself, remember, this is Maimonides. This is, this is way before 1987, right? is already established. In fact, it's, it's the Talmud. It's a direct, direct quote from the Talmud that says if someone, if someone claims that Moses wrote it, wrote it himself, he is encroaching upon this important principle of believing in the divinity of the Torah. Thus, we cannot start off our discussion by saying that the Jews have traditionally said that Moses is the author. No, in fact, the Jews have said, if someone says Moses is the author, well, then he is encroaching on one of the major fundamental principles of the Torah. God's the author. Moses is the typist, the scribe. Uh, Moses is the one who's writing it down. Moses is the conduit, whatever you want. Moses is not the author. Thus, the fact that we have a description of Moses' death in the Torah, well, that's not a problem. It's not a problem at all. If Moses is the scribe, then Moses, I, if I, I could wrote, hey, Wolby died in, I don't know, 20... Uh, 82, whatever. Right, I can write that, right? Can I write that now? Would that take hold on paper if I wrote that? Yes, sure, if God told you. Right, what's the problem? Yeah, I understand the problem. Like, why is this such a big deal? Either way, so that, that's that. It's a written Torah. Now, <laughs> uh, now additionally, the next, the next element is the oral Torah. This is an important thing as well. Uh, we've had, traditionally, there's the schisms that have existed amongst the Jewish people have almost always been directed at the oral Torah, where Jews reject the validity of oral Torah. Uh, in fact, they uh, claim that the, uh, the rabbis ruined Judaism, or the rabbis invented Judaism, or the rabbis are uh, the ones who made all the laws, uh, and thus it's all interpretations, interpretation, and interpretations of is ambiguous, and I can interpret it one way. Well, what if I want to interpret it some, some other way? Well, you know, what a bunch of rabbis are trying to make our life miserable, you know? <laughs> so, so uh, that um, um, misunderstanding, number one, of the oral Torah, and number two, mislabeling uh, of the oral Torah as being made up by the rabbis, says Maimonides, that would also be included. And I think that one's also uh, something we have to really uh, try to, uh, try to uh, analyze. And lastly is the, is the enduring uh, continuity, per, uh, perpetuity of the Torah. Uh, what does that mean? That means that if someone says, hey, the Torah was written by God and the oral Torah is true, however, it's not valid forever. It was swapped out. It was updated. Right? It, was, uh, it needs to be changed. It needs to be modified. There's a new version of it. That would also, call it, that, that would also in, encroach upon this principle. So, for example, I would say that if anyone claims that the, the Old Testament, quote-unquote, is obsolete and the New Testament is a replacement and the Old Testament is no longer true, well, that would encroach in this as well. Uh, and that's a, that, that one's a kind of easy one to, uh, to really understand because 
if we accept the Old Testament, the Torah, as being true at any point in time, well, if it was true, then it is true. And why is that? Because it itself declares that it is binding and immutable and unchangeable. Right? So thus, it, this one's very easy. Once we accept that at any point in time in history, the old Torah, sort of, so to speak, or the Old Testament or the Torah, uh, was true, well then, okay, it still is true. Because it itself declares that this is the final word of God. Do not add, do not subtract. If you add, you subtract, it's a really bad thing. It says it multiple times throughout the entire Torah. So that one is very easy. Uh, but I, I think, it seems to me, that um, Maimonides wrote this in because uh, at that time there were a lot of people that said, oh, yeah, the Torah was true, but it's no longer true. We can update it, we can change it, we can modify it, we could swap it out for some other newer and improved uh, edition. Um, so that's why he, he wanted to write that. Uh, either way, um, I think this is a good impetus for us to have this discussion because... Uh, as Jews, we want to make sure we fit into this category. And not only do we want to accept it as true based upon faith, we want to accept it as true as based upon reason. Because I think this, this is important. When I'm, my goal here is not to scare you and to terrify you and to frighten you and to say, oh, i got to believe it because it's, uh, you know, uh, if I don't believe it, oh, I'm in big trouble. That's not the goal. Right? I assume that everyone here already does believe it. And therefore... The discussion really should be moot, but it's not. Because there's a vast difference between believing it based on tradition and believing it based on evidence. And the goal of the discussion today is to demonstrate um, some interesting aspects of the written Torah that would really make us question, is it possible that it was really com uh, composed or authored by a human? The, Torah, uh, the, the, the text of the Torah has some anomalies uh, or some uh, idiosyncrasies or some elements to it that would make us really seriously question, just logically, based upon reason, whether or not it's possible for the human to have uh, authored it. Human or multiple humans or, or, or what have you. Uh, so that's, that's the goal. The goal is to buttress our existing faith uh, and kind of update it or upgrade our faith from being faith based upon tradition or based upon just uh, inertia or kind of the default status of the Jew is that, yes, you know, that's what we're told as children, and to kind of uh, you know, give a, a, a maturation to our faith in, in the form of basic and upon logic and reason by analyzing the text. So that's the goal. Um, and additionally, I want to say that it's also important for us to know, uh, as Jews, how to uh, talk to a skeptic. So even if someone themselves, I'll give you a second, even if someone, even someone themselves believes entirely, it's important for them to know you have to know the information well enough that, uh, to be able to convince a skeptic, to be able to uh, respond to someone who questions that. Go ahead. Um, my struggle is the language. What, the original Hebrew? Right. What do you mean? What do you mean? Was it's, it was it a different language? Read, that question. We read it in Hebrew, but um, probably they didn't speak Hebrew. Neither Aramaic. Well, right. I mean, they, they spoke Aramaic and, and um, Egyptian. Didn't they speak Hebrew too? No. 
Well, so I, well, I think so. Th- th- I'm saying there's there's a few elements to your question. There's there's the yeah, actual I mean, the, there's the actual text, uh, the the script, so to speak. I don't know if that's your question. That the well, I mean, that said, the, Sav, the Assyrian script, so. right? The Assyrian script or the um, or the um, uh, Hebrew script. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's your question. That's that's yeah. a good question, uh, and that is that we know um, the way uh, Hebrew is written. I'm sure, everyone here is familiar with at least some of the letters. You know, I'm sure there's something in the wall. Is a Hebrew letter in the wall? Uh, the Hebrew script that we have today is uh, what, what's called the Assyrian script of Hebrew. So just like you might have in English, uh, you know, the way you make a, uh, an S, right? So how do you make an S? So you do like this, right? That's an S, right? But then there's the S. Um, well, how do you make an S in script? Sorry, guys. Huh? It's been a while. Thank you. Like that, like a little boat, right? So which one's an S? Well, it's different scripts of the same language. So over the course of, of, of the past 30, 300 years of, of Torah history, Hebrew has gone through some phases where it was originally in the Assyrian script, then it, uh, the script pivoted over a couple hundred years to the, uh, to the Ivris, what's called the Ksav Ivri script. Massive discussion amongst the scholars. Uh, that, that's one question. Well, it, 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 isn't the Dead Sea Scrolls the, yeah, they're all in, the they're oldest... All... No oh, yeah, that's for sure. That's for, that's sure for sure we have, well, it's for sure Hebrew, and it always was Hebrew. Uh, the question is mm-hmm. the actual script. Uh, so we know that the script that, that was in the, ancient, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's the same Hebrew we have today. You go look at the same, same exact Hebrew. If you go back a few hundred years earlier, about 2,500 years ago, no, we don't really have any extant uh, scrolls or, or, or documents from, then, from that time, but if you were to go there, you would find a different script in Hebrew. So that's, that's more of a minor discussion. Now, your question as to whether or not uh, the people spoke Hebrew, uh, I'm not an expert on this, kinda, on this discussion, but I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, Hebrew uh, as a um, conversational language is fairly new. It was revived. It was revived um, very recently. However, I can show you thousands of books written in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century that were written in Hebrew. And the answer is, is that even though people spoke in Europe, they spoke Yiddish and um, I guess in, in Germany they spoke Yiddish as well, but I'm saying in, 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 in div- different parts they spoke Ladino. Jews always had their language, either the language of the people or the you know, Judaicized version uh, of the language. The language of scholarship was always Hebrew. And the language, you know, and, and, and Jews traditionally knew Hebrew as a supplement to, to the language that they spoke conversationally. So I speak to my son in, in English, uh, in a very rudimentary form of that, uh, but he learns Hebrew as well. He doesn't speak to his friends in Hebrew, but because uh, uh, you know to, to study the Torah, you have to speak Hebrew, and to read the prayer, you have to speak Hebrew. So y- you would you would learn Hebrew. So there's always been, regardless of what language people spoke, they also spoke Hebrew, or at least they they kind of understand Hebrew. So I go to my synagogue in in in, um, uh, in Southwest Houston. Uh, the vast majority of people there, even though they're all American, they ha- can have a basic conversation in Hebrew because they have had exposure to to traditional literature, and that's all. That's all. Always been in Hebrew. Could I ask? I'm just curious, Bruce, if you don't mind, elaborate. I'm, I, what, why do you struggle with uh, the language? I'm not sure what the premise of your question was. I'm just curious about it. Well, language is evolved over. Dead Sea Scrolls don't, I mean, there aren't, there's not a match from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Torah, one, one by one. So, what, what, what does that mean? So 
the Dead Sea Scrolls, they contain, mo they contain almost 23 out of 24 books of the Torah, but they contain other books as well. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. Yeah, because the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were an example of Jews who had uh, kind of um, um, a fr a fractured uh, or splintered off the Jewish people. They were, they were most likely the Essenes. And they were once again the people that rejected the Old Torah, which was the common thing at the time. They, they rejected the oral Torah. Oral Torah, that's right. So all they had was the written Torah, and then they also had their own their own apocryphal works. Okay, um, like the like the book of the light, like the the, the 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 war of the light, the the kings of the darkness against the kingdom of light, something like that. It was you know apocalyptic, dystopian stuff. So are you um, saying no? Russo, but no, how but the how, why isn't the that included in what we know of as so, the Torah? So I guess I. No, but they, but the, the Torah had been had been updated along the way at some point, in terms of not the word, not the words changing, but the the, the language, the the language and the actual the way the letters were formed and everything had had evolved. But is that that big a deal? I mean, what's no, the, well, well, no, the, I know. I, I think that the scrolls that we've had, what we have, from pretty sure the scrolls from the, from the Dead Sea Scroll, they match exactly word for word. In, in, in the text that we have overlapping, there's some text that they have that, that we don't have. I mean, isn't it analogous, and maybe I'm completely off on this too, like printed English versus cursive? I mean, it's the same, like we well, well, no, earlier. No, but what Bruce is saying is something more substantive. Okay. Now, I, I, I want to point out that there has been Torahs that are written in foreign languages, like, for example, the, uh, the Septuagint. Right, the Septuagint was written in, uh, about 245 before the Common Era. It was written in Greek. It was the first translation of the Torah to a foreign language. And they, but they didn't trans. Is it true the Septuagint? I read. I thought that they didn't interpret the, any other books. It was just the five. Just books. the five books of the Torah. That's okay. right. That's right. There was no. And when we say Torah, we mean five books of Moses, right? right? Yeah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right. uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm saying uh, even the times of Talmud, so we even go more recent history. Uh, so in Babylon, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century of the Common Era, that's fairly recent. And we know that people spoke Aramaic. Well, there was we know a, that. There, uh, why? Because the Talmud was written in Aramaic. Well, it was written in the language of the people. But well, Torah is not written. But, tor but still, they're studying they the Torah and they quote. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, at least I have to have a familiarity with people. Well, well, there was an Maimonides wrote his book in, or well, some of his books in Arabic. You know, and does that mean that he didn't know Hebrew? Of course, he knew Hebrew. You know, well, there was. And of course, most of the people knew Hebrew. Just that you know, there were times that the that the masses uh, spoke or had a better grasp of of the local language, and that's why you know there was an emphasis in trying to sure. That's right. Well, there was an interesting discussion just a few months, or maybe it was a year. So I can't remember when the Pope um, visited. Um, that he went to, it's the current home. Um, some of y'all may remember this, and I don't think it was ever, they, they went, I don't think it was ever pursued very far, but uh, Netanyahu said to the Pope, because uh, they were talking about Jesus, and he said Jesus knew, Jesus spoke Hebrew. And the Pope said, in a way, in a corrective way, he said, no, Aramaic. And then um, Netanyahu said, well, he knew Hebrew. 
And I don't know what it didn't. I don't remember how far it got after that, but it was just a very interesting. And Netanyahu is not a biblical scholar, probably not. He's prime minister, but I don't. That doesn't make. Well, his son, his son won the uh, Bible contest. Okay. Well, it's just <laughs> that was decent. Yeah. I, I just thought that was very interesting since his we're son, talking about language. His son is like the his son is the uh, the uh, Israeli Bible champion. Is that interesting? Well, maybe he needs to talk to his son. Give him the father of Bible champion as a prime minister, right? But it's just that that was kind of interesting, a discussion between the current modern-day prime minister of Israel and the Pope. Yeah, yeah but, my, 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 but, but I think that the, that the simplest way to understand it is that even if the people spoke primarily one language in a conversational matter, the language of scholarship was almost always Hebrew. You have some, like, you have some butchering, like Maimonides in the Talmud. But even even Aramaic, it's not so far from Hebrew. It's a, it's a very, it's a sister language. It's the, you know, Semitic, right, Semitic language is very similar. Right. Rabbi, the, the, the core scrolls, the separate Torah that we all have. Yes. Right? The only way someone is able to, to have that position of creating a Torah scroll is they have to write copy it letter from letter. That's true. Right. That has never changed. Now, just for the sake of accuracy. Absolutely. Uh, there is one language aside from Hebrew that a Torah scroll is kosher in, and that's Torah scroll, what? kosher, and that it's Greek. What? Interesting. Why? Yes. Why is that? Um, it's uh, it's a very interesting thing. This, this, there was this, um, you know, really. I, I think it might be because of the Septuagint, because the Jews translated, you know, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin thousands of years ago were translated into Greek, so that kind of justified at least that. I don't know of a single Torah scroll written in Greek, by the way, but it's just, you know, maybe it might be theoretical. Uh, but there was this uh, kind of weird relationship that the Jews had with the Greeks wherein they kind of really had a lot in common. And they really kind of hit it off nicely on one hand, and that was the fact that the Jews and the Greeks both met another culture where there was such a, a, a premacy uh, given to knowledge and scholarship and study and wisdom, uh, and that kind of, you know, the, the Torah, the, the, the Torah talks about, how, you know, the Talmud talks about how beautiful Greek is and how beautiful their art and their architecture is and their philosophy is. And on one hand, on the other hand, we know that the Greeks, uh, you know, the idea of humanism kind of <laughs> puts God a little bit out of the center of the focus, or at least the kind of God that uh, that we have always uh, believed in. But it is probably one of the reasons why, you know, that there's there's something really beautiful about this relationship that existed between the Torah and the wisdom of the Torah and Greek philosophy and Greek culture at that time. Uh, and probably also the fact that it was, the Torah was actually translated into Greek, in, in, into Greek that would also um, contribute towards uh, towards the legitimacy of Greek. But either way, besides for that, I don't know any Torah story written in... in, uh, in uh, in Greek, a Torah scroll is written in Hebrew, uh, and it has to be copied from an existing Torah scroll. So you cannot actually write it from memory or write it from the internet or write it from a chumash. You have to have an existing Torah scroll in front of you, and then you copy letter by letter. If you miss one letter or you chip one letter or one letter scratched or one letter is smudged, or like that, the entire Torah scroll is invalidated. Um, the ordinances that are in place to ensure that the Torah scrolls are translated accurately are draconian. Uh, like if you have a Torah scroll, you're, you're talking about 305,804 letters. Maybe 304,805 letters, I believe. That's an enormous amount of letters, all written by hand on parchment that is made out of hides of animals. Uh, I mean, you're written, most righties have a problem, you know, Hebrews right to left, so you might be smudging your letters. You be very careful about that. 
Uh, letters are chipped. Letters are, are touching each other. Entire Torah scroll is invalidated. You miss a letter, you know. Um, and now if you have an invalid Torah scroll, you have 30 days to fix it. You don't fix it 30 days, you must bury it. How do you fix it? You fix it by scratching off the letters. It's a very thick, it's very thick paper. It's not paper, it's, it's hide, it's animal skin. So you can so scratch you it off and fix it. it. Yes, yes, and a Torah scroll also does not need to be written uh, sequentially. As opposed to if you buy a mezuzah, and I know, John, I have to already speak to you about that. If you buy a mezuzah, mezuzah, one of the rules, remember, it's only 248 words, right? Very short, the Shema. You've got to write it from beginning to end. If you skip a line or skip a word, and then you fill in the other word, it's an invalid mezuzah. Now, you buy a mezuzah, you have no idea if some guy wrote an order front to, front to back or back to front. You have no idea, because it looks the same. That's why it's important to buy a... Um, you know, one that one that's that's that from a reputable source, uh, who if they make a mistake, is not going to say, ah, oh, I'll just fix it, and they'll never know. Uh, but as opposed to a Torah scroll, Torah scroll to be written doesn't have to be written sequentially. So, for example, if you write an entire Torah scroll and then you you're doing your research, you're reviewing, you say, oh gosh, you know, five columns earlier I made a mistake. You don't have to start all over. <laughs> I don't think we would have a lot of. Uh... Is it proof? Does... Oh yeah, so they, they have com- they have computers. They have computers today that can automatically scroll through and, 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 and check Torah scrolls. You know, my, my father-in-law uh, wa- went to Craigslist. He would say he goes occasionally to Craigslist and looks for Judaica. And he found a, uh, someone in Detroit was selling a Torah scroll. It was some old uh, synagogue in Detroit that, like, uh, unsurprisingly, like many other things in Detroit, was kind of had its b- best days behind it. And apparently, I guess there was... Uh, uh, I think it was the I think it was the cantor or the rabbi was not paid, so they said, "Okay, oh, just take one of the Torah scrolls instead as, as your payment." And then he was selling it on Craigslist bizarrely. But either way, my father-in-law bought it. And when you buy it, you, you, you whenever you buy a Torah scroll, you you well, the first most important thing is make sure it was not stolen, because a stolen Torah scroll is invalidated because you cannot use something for a mitzvah via a sin. You have to say, "Oh, you know what? I'll steal someone's matzah and eat it." It doesn't work. It's not matzah, you know. So if, for sure, for Torah scroll, you have to make sure that the guy owns it. If the synagogue owns it and he's selling it, right, you can't buy it. So first thing you got to do is verify that he actually owns it. Once that was verified, well, then you have to actually check the Torah scroll, make sure it's kosher. So you bring it to these uh, scribe houses, whatever, and they check it and make sure that it's either if it's good, then great, and if not, uh, then they have to fix it. No big deal to fix it, most of them, especially if the scroll's not so old. They're old and lots of letters chipping and peeling or whatever. By the way, the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls lasted so long is because it's such a dry climate. You know, they were in these um, earthen jars in the driest place on earth, essentially, in, in, south, in south, uh, uh, southeastern Israel. It's the Dead Sea. It's the lowest point on earth. There's no moisture whatsoever. Uh, and therefore, it was able to survive just perfectly intact for thousands of years. But Um, which copper scroll? I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that. Well, Isaiah, I'm saying Isaiah, they found more copies of Isaiah than any other book. It seems like this uh, sect, most likely the Essenes, they kind of like the they like the apocalypse and stuff like that, so uh, very much obsessed with Isaiah. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not familiar with the uh, copper scroll up there. Read up, read up on that. Okay. Um, either way, but back to what Dan was saying, that 
um, mm -hmm. yes, the rules governing how to make sure, how to ensure that Torah scrolls are accurate and transmitted uh, perfectly are, are, are you know, very, very um, exhaustive. So, uh, some other examples. Um, I don't know if it was if it was kosher if it was entirely kosher at the time or or not, um, or they had to fix it. But they could fix it. There's no problem to fix it. Um, in uh, in in the t in Hebrew, and especially in biblical Hebrew, there are no vowels. We know that there's no vowels in Hebrew. There's no uh, there's no vowels. The vowels are in the form of of these uh, of the nukudot. Now, in the Torah scroll, there's no nukudot. That's why it's sometimes confounding for newcomers to read Hebrew from a Torah scroll because it doesn't actually spell it out. Like you're you're, you're missing vowels. It's, you don't know what sounds to make. Um, but it's not entirely true to say that there are no vowels because sometimes there are vowels. And in fact, uh, there are what's called chaserot and yit and yiserot, which means uh, extra or missing letters, which means some words can be spelled in multiple ways. Like, for example, the name Tzipporah. Tzipporah is the name of Moshe's wife. Well, how do you spell Tzipporah? So the way you spell it is either a tzaddik and then a pe and then a vav reish hey, or without the vav. And the Torah is spelled both ways. So which one's the correct way? Well, the correct way is that sometimes you insert the vowel of the vav, and sometimes you don't put in the vowel of the vav. And there is thousands of examples like this in the Torah. Now, if you spell a word in the Torah correctly, but in the Torah it's supposed to be with a vowel, and you put it without a vowel, or vice versa. In the Torah it's without a vowel, and you put it with a vowel. But it's in a vowel Torah scroll. So the word is perfectly correct. The spelling is perfectly correct. Just the spelling in this particular instance is incorrect. It's in the it's in Val Torah scroll. And by the way, just a, um, an interesting uh, historical note: the Yemenites, the Yemenites are a great uh, case study for transmission of the Torah, because the Yemenites they were separated from the mainstream or the mainland of the Jewish people for a long, long time. Like for 2,400 years, they were, there was an entire community um, in Yemen. Yemen is south of Saudi Arabia. So there's the Arabian Desert, and there's Yemen. And there weren't really a lot of, uh, you know, bus routes that went through Yemen. I may have mentioned this before. Yes. Yeah, well, almost exactly the same. Um, so the Yemenites... They were isolated almost entirely uh, from the Jewish people for 2,400 years. Now, the Talmud is written in Babylon. So that's hundreds and hundreds of miles away, which for us doesn't seem like a big deal, but it, it's essentially on the moon, right? If you go back 2,000 years ago and someone's a few hundred miles away through deserts, it's a, it's a, you're as close to them as we are to, people, uh, to the people on the International Space Station. Uh, so they got the Talmud delivered to them, essentially. Like they just got books to live in the mail, Talmud. You know? But they were living as an independent, isolated community for thousands of years. And they came to Israel in the 1950s, 
and they brought their Torah scrolls with them. And someone said, hey, let's give me a Torah scroll. Let's see how good the system is in perpetuating accurate Torah scrolls. So in fact, they did find some, some differences. There were nine letters that were different. Now, obviously, nine letters out of 305 some odd thousand letters, 304,805 letters is really not so much, like percentage-wise. It's, you know, two letters every 100,000 letters. It's really negligible. It's really, it's, it's imaginably small. How do you know which one is Well, I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts on that. But either way, all the letters were, all the differences were in chasirot and yisirot, letter in words that the Torah either has a vowel or does not have a vowel. So there was no words that were different. Not a single word was different. It was just sometimes we had a vowel, they didn't have the vowel, or they had a vowel, we didn't have the vowel. So every single word was exactly the same. Um, now, as to who, which one of them is accurate, we, we don't really know, like we said. Uh, it does show, I guess, some sort of lapse uh, in, in the accuracy of the transmission. Uh, I would venture to say that ours is more accurate, and I'll tell you why. Ours, I mean ours, means the, the, the rest of the Jewish community, because there were efforts made every couple of hundred years to collect all the Torah scrolls from all the uh, communities. Now, what's the problem? The problem is if you have a Torah scroll, you can only copy it from another Torah scroll. So let's say there's one Torah scroll in the community that has a mistake, it's very likely, and, if, and especially if the mistake is in an area of, of just a vowel, it's very likely that no one will even notice it. It's the word. It's the same word. No one's going to say, oh, when you read it in the synagogue, it's like, oh, no, this, you got the wrong word. It's the same word. The problem is, is that when you make another Torah scroll, you copy it from that Torah scroll. So these things could perpetuate very fast. Not very fast, but um, very dramatically. Uh, because you're, just, you're copying from a Torah scroll, and that's the Torah scroll that we've been using. So any mistake can very easily be perpetuated, especially when you don't have computers to check, to check it for accuracy. So what they used to do, um, every couple of hundred years, over the past 2,500 years, they would, uh, they would collect all the Torah scrolls from every Jewish community, and then it would have like a national convention of accuracy checking from Torah scrolls. Now the way it would work, every community would have one Torah scroll that was the legacy Torah scroll. And all Torah scrolls written in that community would be copied from that one. So then you just bring your legacy Torah scroll and all the communities come together and they compare them, all of them, all the legacy against each other. And then they would get rid of the anomalies, which means that if you have 98% of them saying one way and then one or, one or two Torah scrolls saying the other way, it's very likely that the mistake happened uh, amongst those, you know, the small minority. And they would do this every couple hundred years uh, to re- you know, get rid of any mistakes, slight mistakes that could be, that could be, that, you know, that could perpetuate uh, further. Are those Torah scrolls then buried? The ones that no, you can fix them. Oh. Just add a letter, take out a letter, no big deal. Huh? Yeah, it's no big deal. And it, yeah. So that and and because we did that, that's most likely um, going to. Sure that uh, that that ours is accurate, but uh, you know I think they still the, the Yemenite scrolls I think are still are still like that, and that's their tradition. That's so what they did. Do. The Yemenites fix their scrolls. No, they said we're, this is our scroll. Don't tell us how to do it. We've been doing it for a long, long time. We survived really well without you. Um, you know, maybe when uh, the Messiah comes, they'll say, oh, "Well, this is the exact text." You know. But oh, what about them? What's the
I don't know the details yet. Very interesting. Be very interesting to uh, investigate. Yeah. Yeah. So you got a list of things to Google after the class. Now, I, I think it's also important for us to realize these things have to be copied by hand. If you're writing a Torah scroll 1,500 years ago, you have to you have to make the hides by yourself. How do you make a hide? You have an animal. You see a cow. You drive uh, up the 45. You see a cow. Try to convert that cow into two sheets for your Torah scroll. It's, it's not an easy thing, you know. You got to slaughter the cow. Got to make sure the cow's kosher. The cow might not be so amenable to it. <laughs> you know, how are you taking that skin and making it into a Torah scroll? It's, you know, remarkable. You know, you got to take it, you got to take off the hide, and you got to uh, process it, and you got to salt it, and you got to scrape it, and you got to put lines in. If the Torah scroll doesn't have lines, it's not a kosher Torah scroll. Like, they take a little knife and, you know, make yeah. little indentations. Um, and you got to make the ink, and you got to you do it all by hand. And there's no, you have no other, you have no computer, no way to check. You have to check the letters. Imagine, imagine if that was your job. Your job is to inspect Torah scrolls. Make sure that the new Torah scrolls written in town is accurate. Letter by letter, like this, you know. Can you imagine? How easy is it for a mistake to have, hap- you know, to have happen? It's not, it's not so hard to imagine a mistake would happen. We don't have the computers or printed, you know. By the way, the mission, not the mission as much as the Talmud, is uh, every page or two there is a, uh, a word in Talmud that there's a question as to the accuracy of the text. Now, why? Because Talmud was copied for thousands of years, not thousands, hundreds of years at least, uh, or 1,500 years before it was widely, cop- widely printed. We're talking about an enormous, enormous amount of material. So most Jewish communities had like one or two hand-copied Talmuds. How easy is this for, for, for a mistake to, to fall into a, to, a, to a text? Not hard at all. So for Talmud, the, this spell check, so this big process was not as robust as the Torah. Oh, yeah, because remember, it's not, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not as, you know, critical. It's still it's very human critical. It's human-derived, but not God-derived. Yeah, so the, the, the uh, printing press was an amazingly positive uh, uh, benefit for the Jews, you know, that the... Jews were all into it. The first Gutenberg Bible after the Gutenberg Bible, the next book that was printed uh, was the uh, was the, uh, the 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 Bet Yosef. Now, what's the Bet Yosef? You may say, Bet Yosef was a 15th century, 15th and early 16th century uh, book on Jewish law, and if you have a copy of it, it fills two bookshelves. It's enormous. Uh, if that was written by hand, like you know, they how easy is it for mistake to have been perpetuated? So like the Talmud as well. And, we, and today, we pretty much have a uniform text of Talmud. There's, there's maybe one letter, one word, different every couple of pages. No big deal. Uh, but uh, there were efforts made after the possibility of unification and mass dissemination of printed works was, uh, was enabled. There was an effort made to make sure to collect all of the text and make, get the accurate text. So, for example, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna, the famous Goan of Vilna, 1720 to 1797, <clears throat> he, uh, one of the great uh, historical figures uh, uh, in the Jewish community uh, uh, in the past 500 years, per- perhaps the most, uh, or in, on the short list for the most important characters in Jewish history in the past 500 years, uh, he, his life, uh, one of the great mysteries, he spent a large portion of his life in exile. 
quote unquote, which means that he's off the record, off the grid. We have no idea where he went. Um, one of the prevailing theories as to what he did was he was in inspecting all the texts of Talmud from the entire world. So, for example, they found in the British Museum, they found a document admitting Rab Elijah Vilna to come inspect some ancient manuscripts. This is like the 1750s or 60s. In British Library. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is remarkable that they found that, you know. And they said that he was going from collecting all the existing texts of the Talmud and trying to assemble all the information to make sure you get the most accurate text, which is very, very fascinating. Either way, we haven't even started. This is, like, this is part of the introduction. So we might have to have a uh, part two. Um, uh, either way... Um, Go ahead. You talked about the authenticity of the Torah and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Now, with all the biblical archaeologists going around and finding things, does that kind of relate to what you're talking about? The yeah, so um, archaeology, as in um, study of physical artifacts, right? That's what archaeology is. Yeah, so that's 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 a fascinating subject. So we have we have um, in biblical archaeology, it's an enormous subject. Uh, we have two major camps, the maximalists and the minimalists. Uh, you have basically the people that are essentially trying to augment the uh, role archaeology has to play in proving the, the Torah, and there are those that are trying to minimize the role that it has to play in proving the Torah, or maybe even questioning, using archaeology to question the legitimacy of the Torah. Uh, for example, there was a um, famous uh, non-Jewish but it was a Christian, actually, or initially it was a Christian, became a Noahide. There was a Noahide um, archaeologist by the name of Vendel Jones. Uh, and he was an archaeologist who was uh, using archaeology to prove the Torah. Uh, and there are those, especially Israelis, that love to use archaeology to try to disprove the Torah. Um, not, neither side has... Uh, a whole lot of evidence because uh, there's no anachronisms that we've found. Now, what is an anachronism? Anachronism is where you find something that, um, or you find um, something that's that's dated, uh, that's mis- misdated. For example, if you were to find a document saying that uh, Julius Caesar flew in a helicopter, you would know, well, helicopters weren't invented until thousands of years later. So if Julius Caesar was on a helicopter, this document must not be historical because it's talking about either information or numbers or prices or names or places that were not uh, uh, there at the time. So there's no anachronisms that we found in the Torah. And in fact, we have found some corroborating evidence, like, for example, the sale of Joseph. Remember that, the sale of Joseph in Genesis? So Joseph is being sold. Who here remembers how much Joseph was sold for? 20 silver pieces. That's what the Torah says. So there you have a very interesting piece of, of data. We have a Torah. The Torah, we, we, have, we know what it's dated to, about 3,500 years ago, something like that. And we have a description of the sale of a 17-year-old slave. Now, the amount of change that could happen is dramatic. Like, for example, this example is one given by someone else. If you were to get a haircut, so I pay... $17 for a haircut. Now, 100 years ago, a haircut was probably 5 cents. 
So if someone wrote that they got a haircut in 2015, it was five cents, you would know that this is not, this is anachronistic. Or, for example, $17 100 years ago, well, that's what a family took home every month, you know? So that's not a, the price for a haircut. <coughs> we have found other evidence, other documentation for lists of sales of slaves dated to that time where, where, where the price for a slave was 20, was 20 silver pieces. That's something very interesting. You know, that would seem to say that at least either the author knew it, which if the author came a thousand years later, how would the author know the price of a slave? You know, a thousand years ago. You would know the price of a haircut a thousand years ago? You have no idea. How would you know the price of a slave? You know, maybe he had access to those documents. So it's, not, it's not the best proof in the world. Maybe the, the author who came 2,400 years ago instead of 3,500 years ago, maybe he had access to documents. But it's also remarkable to say, it's, it's striking uh, to say that the the um, uh, that the we have documentation. Google this as well. Add another thing to the Google uh, queue. But we have documentation that corroborates what the Torah claims about that. Uh, additionally, they have found um, names like uh, Yisachar and Ephraim, names that were Jewish names. Uh, they have found them on some sort of hieroglyphics in Egypt dated to that time. Uh, there's a whole discussion about the Ipur papyrus, um, which is, once again, a, a, a written, written account from Egypt dated to the time when the Jewish people were there that says, quote, uh, amongst other things, says there's blood everywhere. There are those that have tried to use that as proof to the, the, the narrative in Exodus about the blood. Because it is dated to the time, and it is, the, you know, Ipur papyrus, I-P-U-W-A-W-E-R, something like that. P-A-P-Y-R-U-S. Uh, there are those that question that. There's a whole discussion about this. So it's not clear. There's no uh, really strong and compelling evidence in either way. There, there is, I think there is some compelling evidence to prove the Torah. There's nothing that disproves the Torah. In fact, I don't know if I mentioned this last week. Maybe I did um, on my notes here to say. Uh, I, I, I do also think that there has been uh, an effort to try to um, embellish some quote-unquote evidence against the Torah. And I think there has been some sloppy journalism and certainly sloppy science with regards to trying to disprove the Torah. And I had, I don't, I don't know if I showed this last time. Um, did I, do you guys remember if I showed um, an article from the New York Times about camels? Yeah. I did show. We talked about it. Okay, so, I, so there's this article uh, written in, 19, in 2014, very recently. Uh, and the title of the article is Camels had no business in Genesis. <laughs> Saying that we know there are some narratives about uh, Abraham and camels, domesticated camels, and the article was uh, was proposing that that was anachronistic. Why? Abraham dated about you know, 37, 3,800 years ago. He had domesticated camels. Well, were there domesticated camels at that time? Maybe yes, maybe no, right? Well, let's see what the evidence says. So two Israelis, <laughs> Bible scholars, two Israeli Bible scholars, they found remains of domesticated camels that they dated to, to, to 3,000 years ago, so 1,000 years BCE. And then the article draws on to claim, therefore Abraham could not have had domesticated camels 700 years earlier. I kid you not. You could still go to, go to the website, go to google.com, go 
Go to the search, New York Times, Camel's Genesis. You will find this article. Okay? Everyone wants to volunteer to look at it right now? It's there. It's the article. That, that, that's the entire theme. That, that's all it is. It is and you, the question is, that's the, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, why is that silly? Just because you found remains of domesticated camels that you date to 3,000 years ago, that doesn't mean that that was the first domesticated camel you know, out there. Maybe there were camels earlier. You know? For example, here. So John gives me this uh, magazine. So if I find this magazine, let's say five years from now, I find this magazine and say, oh, August, September of 2015, Hadassah magazine. Clearly, there cannot be a Hadassah magazine from 2010. There can't. Look what I found. It's from 2015. <laughs> right? That's what it's saying. That's what the entire article is. And you say, well, there's got to be something. Check it out. Go to the, find this article. I had a copy of it. I didn't bring it in today. Find the article. I don't, I don't even think it's behind a paywall. You can get it. And that's what the article says. That's all it says. That they found a domesticated camel from 3,000 years ago, and clearly Abraham cannot have had camels. And that's the most asinine thing I've ever heard in my life. And that's printed in what's allegedly a reputable newspaper. These are the findings by these scholars. And what does that show us? It shows us that perhaps the bar for admission of information and publication of a stance when it comes to disproving the Torah is not all that high. You know, perhaps the editors, for whatever reason, like this, this is sloppy journalism on one hand, but certainly sloppy scholarship. How could you use this as, to try to disprove the Torah? It's insane. Uh, but I think that there are people that, like I said, are trying to. But if you just read the, head, the headline, you just skim through the article, oh, whoa, goodness gracious, it must be that the Genesis is written afterwards. That's what you would say if you read the article really quickly. If you actually just stop and, and, and just read what it says, what did they found, what did they find, and what are they trying to uh, claim as a result of the findings, then you clearly see that there is a bias against uh, the divinity of the Torah. And it's, once again, scholars trying to pull the wool over the, our eyes to make us uh, make us just naively accept that the Torah was written later. Um, now, what are the states of the issue? So, what, in our discussion, we have a discussion about the accuracy, historicity, veracity of the Torah. What is at stake? I mean, what are the implications on both sides of the of the argument? What does it mean if the Torah is true? What does it mean if the Torah is not true? When I say Torah is true, I mean the Torah is written by God and typed by Moses. And when I say, when I say Torah is not true, it means any other, any other way. It means I'm separating into two camps. Either the Torah is written the way it claims to be written, Moses writes down what God tells him. Moses is just uh, 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 writing down what God's conveying to him. He's just the scribe. That's one side, Torah being true. Other side is anything else, whether that be the documentary hypothesis, multiple authorships, one author, is it Ezra, whoever it is, is it Jeremiah, right? Some other author aside from Moses. Some legend written down, written down when, that doesn't matter. Either side of the issue that we're going to take, um, what are the implications? So if the Torah is true, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Jewish, the Jewish people, this is the most important 
you know, writing. This is the description of the tenets of Judaism. And then what we've been living for and very frequently dying for is indeed something that's worthwhile to live and die for. Divinity of the Torah. Yeah, but if the Torah is not true, then all the Jews that died for being Jewish, well, they were hoodwinked. You know? The people that said, I'm going to give up my life for, for, for Judaism. A lot of people did that. Millions of people throughout history. I, I, that, that, that's one very interesting implication. Okay, by, by, not, by saying it's not true, meaning that God didn't write it, is, but are we defining not true by meaning God didn't write it, a bunch of people wrote it, or a bunch of men wrote it? I, I, think, I think it's, it's, it's once, we, once God didn't write it, then it doesn't matter who, would actually, who actually wrote okay. it. But does yeah. that... that that may dis- that may say then therefore there goes the argument about the divinity of the Torah, but it's not a worthless book. Necessarily. Well, I'm going to say it's a worthless book. So it's then that it's true. It's not. It's still maybe great literature. Right. You know, very inspirational. It's inspirational. Very moral, uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Be that, that and, I, and I think there are a lot of atheists out there that say that the Ten Commandments are they believe the Ten Commandments. You know, they believe in what the Torah, a lot of the, what the Torah says. But there you know? are a lot of books that are that are inspirational. Oh and yeah. Wonderful and right. the Torah is distinct. That's yes. true, but if if the if we say the Torah is not true, right, then the Torah could still be valuable. It sure. still be a historical document, but it's obviously it's not as valuable as it would be if it's you know it's it's dramatically different. Um, now, you you would you would agree, right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, what are what other what other means? What is at stake here? So so you said, like I said, you know, it's it's important for us to know for the Jewish people per se. But I, I also think. That if someone, let's say, believes in God, what does what what must extend from from that? It means what else has to be true if God is true? If you're believing in if you believe in God, you're carrying out the commandments of the Torah because you believe that God expects you to do it, that God told you to do it. Okay, but. It, is it possible to believe in God and not believe in the Torah? Sure. Yes. You would think so, right? You would think so. But let me ask you a question. Okay, so then you have a little problem because you believe in this great intelligence that created the world, created everything, yet you don't believe that he somehow gave us a way to actually utilize or, or find this purpose. It means it's, it's, it's essentially a, a, a little bit of a contradiction. On one end, you're going to have this very intelligent God that clearly did something as grand, at least from my perspective, as grand as the entire world. And you would argue that it's got to be for a purpose, yet we have no way of knowing the purpose. So it's a little bit of a contradiction to say you believe in God but don't believe in the Torah. Well, that's why not. Abraham was, you know, so was able to discover Torah just through his own intellect. He didn't receive in a parchment. So you could say the Torah is not given at Mount Sinai, and, and we're searching. Well, but Abram still had the Torah, and Abram still had the Torah of God. So the 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 methods of acquirership of the Torah is, not, is that, that that might be different, but that's an interesting point. Abraham, once he reached the destination of God, that implied purpose, thus he had Torah. It means it's it's my, 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 my point like this. My point like this. That if we are going to say that God did it all but didn't tell us how to actually achieve the purpose or there was no purpose, I think that's insane. I think it's crazy to say that, that, 
that the great intelligence created something purposelessly. Purposelessly. Purpose. Does that work? Yeah, I think it works. Okay. <laughs> Sounds funny. Without purpose. Right, without purpose. But I think that's a little bit uh, um, bizarre. And therefore, well, if, if there is a purpose, is it possible that God would not tell us in some way? But isn't like what the whole New Testament and Christianity is about? There is no direct manifestation. New Testament is written by people, certainly. So they have the way out of that contradiction. Yes, but even, well, not really, because they're also accepting the fact that uh, that the Torah was 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 written was right. written by God. Well, there are, but Christians also believe that the New Testament was inspired by. They may not say that God wrote the New Testament, but they believe okay, that so was inspired right. by God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were sure. were all uh, sure. doing what God wanted them to. Plus, sure. there is no overt plan in anywhere in Christian books. Well. Yeah, because it's, it happens to not to not be written by God. But I'm saying, but uh, you know, but the idea of having the Creator minus the purpose, or at least the purpose conveyed, is a little bit of a contradiction. Um, and like I said, without 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 the Torah, then really we 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 don't really have Judaism, which is an interesting point. Uh, either way, so I think the stakes are kind of high. It's it's important for us a in our faith um, in God irrespective of religion, but also um, especially in as Jews who have been living this religion for a really long time, uh, if the Torah is indeed true, then it's a validation of what we've been living for for a really long time. Otherwise, if it's not true, then it's, it's a major uh, question on the way Jews have been living, and it's a question on, on the way Jews are living today. You know, every synagogue today has, has, has its Torah scroll. Torah scrolls are really expensive. They cost fifty, sixty thousand dollars Multiply that by the millions of Torah scrolls. How much human effort in perpetuating a, a falsehood? If the Torah would indeed not be, not be true. Uh, and we said, uh, another point I want to rehash this point, uh, and that is that the... Well, another implication. If the Torah is true, this is probably the most frustrating it implication. Is. I know it is, right. <laughs> right. Of course it is. Now, um, but... If it is true, then what does it mean for us? It means it's binding for us. And that's where it gets unnerving for a lot of people. Because if it's true, well, what does that mandate that they ought to do? They ought to follow its ways. And a lot of people are a little bit hesitant in that. And that's problematic for a lot of people. So if you find a lot of Jews that are trying to disprove the Torah, perhaps their biases of not wanting it to be true are influencing their, their approach to actually investigating the information. Is that right? If I have a built-in bias to try to not be bound by the uh, difficult laws of the Torah, you know, but I have the conscious, well, if it is written by God, you know, we're kind of stuck, right? So what would you want to do? You'll say, well, okay, it's not written by God, you're not stuck. And that's why I think us, in our investigation, we're also going to, we're, we have skin in the game. This is not merely an academic discussion. Well, hopefully, we, we, you know, we're going to approach it in, in a, the most logical, reasonable way possible. But it has implications to our lives. You know? If someone, you know, if someone uh, doesn't want to eat the matzah, doesn't like matzah, you know, wants to eat chametz, well, the Torah is very severe about someone, not, someone 
not eating chametz on Passover. Very, very severe. Well, if that's from God, then you got to listen. If it's not from God, well, maybe you don't need to listen. Maybe then it's just tradition. Eat the matzah. Um, so I, I think it's 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 important for us to realize that we uh, that we have we're most likely going to have uh, uneasiness that's going to agitate us. Uh, because if the Torah is true, we are in some way submitted and we are going to be beholden to it. And therefore, uh, it's going to be important for us to constantly try to evaluate the evidence uh, on its own merits, not on what we want it to say. Okay? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So not all the mitzvahs that we have are we able to fulfill today. Of course not. But there's hundreds of mitzvahs that are relevant only in Israel or only in the times of the temple. Um, and indeed, most, most, the majority of the mitzvahs we cannot fulfill physically. Like, we, we could still study them. We could still gain some insight from them, but we can't actually fulfill them. Uh, but there still is a whole lot that we have to fulfill and we must fulfill if the Torah is true, which is going to be unsettling, perhaps. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's look a little bit about what the Torah says, and we're going to try to dip our toe into some of the evidence, and let us see where it brings us. So, uh, just, I want to rehash what we did last time, because it was many months ago. Uh, we find the revelation at Sinai. The revelation at Sinai is the critical event of the Torah repeated multiple times, it's rehashed, it's referenced multiple times in the Torah, uh, and it is not unique to Judaism, the idea of revelation, right? Why? Because in fact, every religion begins with revelation. Every single religion, religion by definition is going to be what the higher power advocates that the people do. That's what religion means. So, the Christians, they have what their religion says. The Muslims have what their religion says. The Jews have, we have what our religion says. But, uh, but that's, how, that's how religions begin. Religion starts with the revelation. Revelation of God, God says, Oh, Muhammad, how you doing? Hey, right? Muhammad says he's a prophet. That's, that, that's how religion starts, you know? Uh, every religion begins with this revelation. However, uh, the Torah records a national revelation. Now, this may not sound like such a big deal, um, um, but it is, in fact, the only religion that has a national revelation. Only one religion begins with a revelation of not one person, rather an entire nation of millions of people. Now, it's recorded in the book that's actually delivered to the people that experience the revelation. So many times... For example, it, Moses tells the people, we read it a few weeks ago, Moses says, it wasn't like it was your parents that saw this revelation about Sinai. It wasn't like your parents were the ones who experienced these miracles of the templates and drinking water from a rock and eating manna from heaven. It was you, the people that get the book. They're the ones who experienced the miracles. Uh, and n- not, n- this actually has major implications. So, the Jewish people accept the, word, the Torah. We know that they have adopted the Torah. And, uh, and they do it despite the fact that if it wasn't true, they would all know it. 
So if the Torah was not true, then would it really have gotten such a head start? Why? Because if it wasn't true, then it would be easily verifiable as to not be true. Let me ask you a question, guys. If I were to start a religion, and I would want to convince all of you to follow me, what would be the best approach for me to do that? Move to Utah. Well, yeah, that would help. <laughs> what? Move to Utah. <laughs> well, I would have to convince you that God spoke to me, right? Now, if you guys all knew for sure that God did not speak to me, would you follow me? Probably not. Maybe someone would. Maybe you don't want to get the masses to follow me. Therefore, if I was a charlatan, my goal would be to try to mask the falsehood, right? I would say, well, God spoke to me, and you will have no idea if that's true or not, because he didn't speak to you guys. But if I was a faker... And I said, God spoke to all of us. And God did indeed not speak to all of us. Well, then we would all know that I'm, 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 a, I'm a charlatan. I'm a faker. Is that right? Moses tells the people, God spoke to all of us. And this is repeated multiple times. Now, the movies didn't do a great job of, of, of accurately transcribing uh, the, uh, the, the text. You know, it's always to say, when you do a book report, make sure you read the book and don't watch the movie. Uh, because... If you read the books, get the text. Go read Deuteronomy. Read a couple chapters. Right? It's very clear that God spoke to everyone. Everyone had the revelation. Right? If this did not happen, how does Moses come along and say, you know what, you guys all saw it. Right? They wouldn't accept it if it didn't happen. Not only that, the people that experienced it, they were the ones who, who, can, who got the Torah from Moses. Can I play devil's advocate Go ahead, for always. a second, Rabbi? Um, couldn't somebody write, just leave it for future generations to see, couldn't somebody just write, whether it happened or not, that a mass of people saw this? Okay, just write it. I mean, I could write, you know, that uh, I could write, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that, that a million people saw me and, uh, you know, and just were in awe. Okay, and uh, I could write it and leave that somewhere. And Maybe somebody will find it years okay, later. Okay, so there's a few, there's a very good question. Okay. That's, the, that's the obviously the natural progression of, of the discussion. Um, there's a few problems with that. First of all, what would happen if that were the case? What would we tell our kids? Like, imagine I show up and say, oh, there's this long lost document I found. Right? Then, number one, I would be a hero. Right? I would be celebrated. I'm the guy who found it. I'm the guy who restored the grandeur of the Jewish people, right? We have no recollection of that guy, number one. Number two, there would be this history of this time of darkness, so to speak, where it was lost. Right? We would have this national narrative of we had lost the Torah for a thousand years and then someone else found it. We have no, we have no interruption. We have the names of the people all the way back from Moses. Like, I, I, I have a list compiled of name after name of name of teacher to student from present times all the way to Moses. We have an uninterrupted documentation of all those people. That's number one. Number two, <laughs> uh, no, no, num- number two, we, the book itself describes Moses teaching the people. And we're talking about a nation of millions of people. And they're instructed in the book to teach their kids. And it's not just an ideal, it's a way of life. 
and it's a in totally encompassing way of life. Like we said, it's the fill in the morning, it's the Shema in the morning and at night, it's the mezuzah on the door, it's the matzah on, on the holidays, it's the, it's the it's the rest on Shabbat, it's the shofar on, on Passover uh, on, on Rosh Hashanah, shofar on Passover that wouldn't work, <laughs> right? It, it's eating it's eating the kosher, it's 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 praying, it's blessings the hundred times, hundred blessings a day. It's a very encompassing way of life, and that's being perpetuated uh, onward. Thus, it's not just something. Oh, we found a, I found a, a document in a bottle. It's not like some ideal. It's a way of life, a way of life that was perpetuated. A fair life, a way of life that, 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 that's cumbersome. It's not an easy way of life. It's not easy to be great, right? That's what the Torah expects of us. You know, that is perpetuated at the time when the people could have very easily falsified or exposed the false, if it were to be false. So yes, the, you know, the, the other question is, well, maybe the people were duped into it. You know, maybe Moses was really. Moses is like this David Copperfield kind of character where he's able to uh, uh, dupe the people into believing maybe they're all on mushrooms, you know, and, high, and hallucinogenic drugs. These are the questions that people ask. And, and, and the biggest answer to all of this is, oh, well, if the Jews were so clever at doing that, why did no one else think of that? Yeah, it's millions of people. Yeah, millions. Yeah, it's, 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 it's astounding, you know. It's astounding to try to convince millions of people that they saw something, that, you know, that they didn't see. Especially and Jews. Why would Jews, they Jews make are stiff. It so hard. Why would they make so many rules if they were doing it themselves? Not only that, like why? If you were, if you were hoodwinking the people, if right. you were, you would, you would do it in a way that it's, it can be pulled off. Right. If you and I were trying to establish this great myth of this Mount Sinai experience, we would tone it down a little bit. No, we wouldn't just again and again say you saw, you saw with your eyes, and you saw. Right? We wouldn't do that. Right, because that's exposing ourselves more than we need to. Yeah. So, Rabbi, the Torah was written by Moses, put in the ark, and I don't remember seeing anywhere later where they said, and it was uh, copied again. Moses wrote 13 Torah scrolls towards the end of his life. Uh, one for each tribe and one that was kept in the ark. Okay. That that scroll for each tribe was used to be the legacy scroll for those tribes. Those scrolls lasted for fa- for hundreds of years. They were copied uh, again. The Torah itself says you should write a Torah scroll. Although at the end of the Torah, the last minutes of the Torah, is to write Torah scrolls. Um, so it wasn't just one Torah scroll that was put that was put in the. King had like we read that last week, uh, uh, last uh, two weeks ago in the parsha. Sorry, last week of the parasha, that, 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 that the king of the right Torah scroll, two of them, one to take with them, one to leave at home. You know, so um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, um, yeah, it was, it was from, from day one, it was very perpetuated. And by the way, another point to, to, you know, to Steve's uh, hypothetical scenario is that if I came and I convinced, I, tried to, I found the document, you know, what am I saying? I'm, I'm saying that. Your parents all experienced this, but no one seemed to have any recollection of it. it means something, it, it, it's so fantastical, it's so dramatic, it's so wondrous, the claim of the Torah. Remember, it's not just the Mount Sinai experience. That, that is obviously the high point. But the exodus from Egypt and ten plagues, you know, and then uh, the splitting of the sea, uh, you know, and um, total vanquishing of Pharaoh and, and the manna from heaven for 40 years. Like, that is not something that you do not perpetuate, you don't tell your kids about, you know? That, that becomes the, you know, the lifeblood of, of, of our education. We tell the kids about the, about the past. 
Is it possible to say that someone said, oh, there was all this great history. No one seemed to have remembered it. You know, it, you know no one seemed to have uh, perpetuated this. I'm the one who happens to have found this document. You know, if you found the document and it indeed was not part of, uh, of your consciousness, you would take it as, as, as being really nice literature, really nice mm-hmm. fiction. You wouldn't actually start living your life based upon those really rigid rules. Uh, either way, that's uh, that's you know something we really have to. It, it's obviously there's multiple components to that to that to that point, but it's also interesting that this, that the Jewish people are the are the only nation that has had this claim. Now, I want to read you something from a few weeks ago when we read it in Deuteronomy, and this is uh, to me this is the final you know. I, I, I think it's the final nail in the coffin. So that's bad terminology, but. It's, it's, uh, it's the final um, uh, extinguisher of any question on this, on this theory, uh, on so this what, point. What you, what you share with Skeptics. Oh, yeah. Like this. We have the narrative of Sinai. There's a question as to whether or not it's true or not. It's a legitimate question. If it was not true, then it was, it's a hoax, right? It was made up, Right. That's, that's obviously what, right, right? It's either true, either it happened, or it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, though, it was written, it was made up, it was, it was passed off as actually happening, even though it didn't happen. Listen to what the book itself says. Deuteronomy, where it describes the Mount Sinai experience. It says as follows. Listen to this prediction, guys. I'm going to read it to you here. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32 and 33, I think, as well. You might inquire about times long past, from the day that God created man on earth, from one end of the heaven to the other. Has there ever been anything like this great thing, or has anything like it been heard? Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fires as you have heard and survived? Three verses. What it's telling you is it's, it's, it's a prediction and a challenge. It's saying like this. Inquire from the times long past. Right? Do your investigation. From the day that God created man on earth, from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven. Right? Go back through all of history, one of, from the entire world. And what should you ask? What should you inquire? Has there ever been anything like this great thing? Or has, everything, has anything like this ever been heard? Has this ever been a claim as follows? Has the people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fires as you have heard and survived? Has an entire nation ever heard national prophecy? Has that ever happened? It never happened. So the book is saying this happened to the Jewish people, but it never happened to anyone else. And not only that, no one else will even claim to have, had, to, to have had this experience. Now let me ask you a question. Assuming we are the ones, we are the committee for the fabrication of the Torah. That's what our job is. And we're making up this whole Mount Sinai experience. And we're going to pass it off as true even though it never happened. Would we right then say that no one else will actually do the same thing? It seems insane. If we know that it's possible to be done, because we ourselves are trying to do that, why would we say that no one else will do the same thing? We're opening up ourselves for being disproven. So the Torah not only says that this happened, it said that no one else will do it, that no one else will even claim, claim it. And that's true. Nobody else no one else has it. claimed it. So is it possible that we're the only ones who are so clever to make up such a, such, such a hoax and such a fabrication in such a dramatic way and no one else can even do it? And you know what? We'll say that no one else can even do it. To, to me, this is something really, really compelling, really intriguing. Uh, that uh, that would uh, that would 
really make, make, make me question. Like, it seems, on one hand, if this was written by man, they're obviously very, very intelligent, yet they did something so silly. They're intelligent because they're able to perpetuate a myth, which we didn't know how they would do that, but let's say they were able to do it, yet they're silly that they said no one else could do it. It is a very good point. However, isn't it possible that someone could come along in the future and write this thing about uh, this divine thing that happened, nothing to do with Judaism, another faith or religion? Well, we say that the Torah says it will never happen. It's a tradition. And you so know what? Far so, far, so, so, good. so far, so good. <laughs> Muhammad did that. No, but no, Muhammad, no, Muhammad never, never claimed. Never said. Never claimed. Never claimed a nation experienced prophecy. No one's ever claimed it. Yeah. Why not? Christianity There's about forty-two thousand religions out there. Why are we the only ones that could do it? There's a professor. He was an atheist, and he's Jewish, born Jewish, and he said uh, he taught a class, and he said, "If you have a religion, you can put together any religion with these five elements. One of them was prophecy of one person, and it didn't matter who he talked to, people in India, and all these different things. He could just he could prove. Look at how these five elements. Anybody could create this religion. And then he said, "Well, I'm going to take that and I'm." to my own religion, to Judaism, even though he was atheist or whatever. And he became an Orthodox rabbi because he was like, the revelation at Mount Sinai is impossible to do all of them. And then he did the same thing for he tracked his father, his father's all the way back. He was able to track it all the way back to Mount Sinai. And then he did it with other people. So it was... So that's the evolution of, a, of an atheist. He was, yeah, uh, yeah. He was like, I scientifically proved that so like there's no other way around it. He couldn't find any other way around it. Very. In some, in some ways, we were talking about if you wanted to create a religion, you would give all of those rules and regulations and what have you. But that's kind of what the New Testament is. You would give or would not give. You would. If somebody you would make it user friendly. Yeah, you make it user friendly, <laughs> and the New Testament did it. However, I don't know. And they also, when he rose again, did he not be seen by five hundred people? Or, or 500 rose from the dead too roughly how many died that there rose. were many who had seen him raised from the dead yeah so so but the, the, but, that, but that the, but that's but remember that's also not that's not that's not historical it's not written at the time so that's that's well, an important some point people didn't believe it was him and then there's the debate well his doubting tom he didn't believe it and they didn't recognize him and, you know. yeah but it, 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 a few, there's a few differences first of all uh, difference number one is the fact that this is not actually written at the time so remember, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written at the early Testaments between 50 and 60 years after this events purported to happen. But even let's assume it did happen. Let's assume it did happen. Let, let, let's assume. I'm, I, I don't think it did happen. Let's assume it did. It's still not prophecy. It's still not national prophecy. It's still not national revelation. And we know there have been times of reviving the dead. That, in, in, on its own, is not that big of a deal. I could bring you 10 stories from the Talmud of the rabbis reviving dead. We have Elisha reviving the dead. That in itself is not akin to prophecy. The fact that someone could revive it, that's not as big of a deal as prophecy. So if someone could do a miracle, you know, there were times that the, the Bilaam could do miracles. So what? That's not on the same footing as prophecy. Prophecy is an entirely different beast. So even if that were to be true, which I don't think it is, because remember, it's not historical, so it doesn't have the same historicity as with the Torah, as being, being written contemporarily. Uh, but even if it were to be true, that doesn't prove the same thing. So yes, if it did happen, it's still eye-opening. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Most likely it didn't. But even if it did, it's eye-opening. It's a good, it's a good point of, you know, it's a good, it's a good question, actually, maybe how it happened. Um, but 
irrespective of that, that's not that's not revelation. That's not it's not that's not prophecy. Is 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 very very different than than doing a miracle. Would it be fair to say the most recent uh, incantation of a, of a quote revelation in our history? Uh, I mean, I'm talking about world history. Um, is Mormonism? Uh, yeah. So so that's not to a nation. So John's right. John uh, Smith. So John Smith. No, that's a great Joseph example. Smith. Joseph, Joseph Smith, sorry. Joseph Smith, it sounded, it sounded funny. John, John Smith, John Smith's a generic. Yeah, if you, if, if you knew him as well as I did, you'd call him John as well. His friends call him John. Yeah, Joseph Smith, so what, what, what's his claim? He's claimed that he found these golden tablets, mountains in New York, written in Reformed Egyptian, and the angel come and, and, and whatever. He met the angel, and the angel uh, they translated Right? Andrew Gabriel. Andrew, and then they translated it into English, and that's the Book of Mormon. Right. One man. Right? No one else has saw this angel. No one else has even seen this, these tablets. Right? Why didn't you just show us the tablets, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's in the, not copper, but it's, you know, I would, I would but, keep it, right? But so they obviously uh, or Reformed, no one's even heard of Reformed Egyptian. So that's one man in, inventing, we're well, not inventing, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but either way, we have no way of verifying it. Very right. It was what, 1830, where this, like that. this happened? Right, so, that's an entirely different narrative. Now, there's plenty of Mormons. There's people that doing have, this today. Have, have, there's, there's, there's cults today. Um, that we have a leader, he doesn't be very big or famous, a leader who convinces people that they have prophecy, God spoke to them, whatever that may be. And drinking purple Kool Aid. Exactly. But Mormonism obviously Or uh, put, on the, uh, put on the Nikes and sharpen the knife. Mormonism. It has taken hold amongst a lot of people. It's growing faster. Oh, in America. Okay. I said it's the fastest growing religion. Yeah, because of the birth rate. That would help. I saw this further Protestantism. What is Islam? Well, because probably Islam is so much bigger, so percentage-wise. Yeah. And absolute numbers, I'm sure Islam is growing faster. But national revelations, well, we talked about Islam. And by the way, Islam is not that user-friendly at all. Yeah. You yeah. try to get every day in your life at 5 in the morning to do this. Or fast prayers. for a month. Yeah, or fast for, for a month, yes. So the thing, but when Prophet Muhammad took off to this heaven on the horse from the rock of the Dome of the Rock fame, it, he was surrounded by... Hundreds of people. Well, it's actually, not national relations. No, whoa, 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 whoa! Just, still. just for accuracy, what you're describing is the is the is the is the ultimate event of the of the Quran. It's from Surah 17, and that's actually a dream. The whole thing is a dream. It's nonsense. Really, they don't. It's even a dream say that the hundreds of people really saw it. It's a dream. They it's a dream that Muhammad gets on his on his on his uh, flying horse El Baruk, and they fly to Al Quds. Baruk, whatever. It, that's a dream. Oh, you're thinking like oh, El Al? Or yeah, El Al. How about a different example? That's, Those, that's a dream. How about a different example, which is not a dream? Maya priests standing on top of those pyramids to Aztecatl and predicting, in front of thousands of people, predicting those uh, solar eclipse, eclipses, which is news that would come, right? Yeah. So it was also like a national revelation. Well, even Christianity, the whole road to Damascus, they, uh, Saul was a dream, wasn't it? That didn't, they don't even claim that that happened. That he, they, they said he dreamed that Jesus spoke to him. Uh, no, so Either way, but they're talking about something that... 
tens of thousands of people observed on a regular basis. But remember, but that's 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 not the same thing as prophecy, right? If you were if you were a little more skilled in astrology uh, yeah. or astronomy, oh, oh, yeah. sorry, I missed it too. No, but um, uh, then you would know, right? Yeah, no doubt that those Mayas, Aztecs, religion yes. today they do not pass the test of religion. Oh yeah. However, they did at the time. Yeah, during but the Mesoamerican height of their civilization. But that's not in any way similar to. Remember, like what happens, like to us, I think you know we could oversimplify. Like what happens when someone has prophecy? You know, who knows what happens then? With what? When you have prophecy. What happened to the Jewish people when they had prophecy? Anyone knows? When they had prophecy. At Mount Sinai, yes. They, they they said they would it. obey. They said they we, we know the first things they did they repudiated it by golden. Cover. Well, that's forty days later. Yeah. At the time, they said they would they would hear that's and understand or hear and obey. So everything you say we will do. Yeah. So they had this transcendental experience. Um, they tell Moses, "Stop having God talk to us. We want you to talk to us." Remember that? They couldn't handle it. You know, the Talmud sheds some more light on this by saying that they actually died and had to be brought back to life. Because they were not designed for prophecy. It was too much for them to bear. Prophecy, and even real established prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Samuel, Abraham, uh, Maimonides described what happens when they get prophecy. They start shaking like a leaf. Having God talk to you, that's significantly more dramatic and traumatic than anything that any prediction or any, or, any, or any nice miracle that someone could do. It's an entirely different realm. Even if J.C. walked on water and he turned water to wine and all that, let's assume that happened. It's not in any way uh, uh, comparable to prophecy. Prophecy is an entirely different realm. If it happened or if it didn't happen, that, 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 that in no way is in, it has, has no corollary to prophecy. Having God communicate to a man is, or to man, I would say man, I mean mankind, or ladies here, whenever I say man, I mean mankind, that is dramatically different than any sort of supernatural or, uh, or uh, um, metaphysical experience that someone could have. It's entirely different. So yes, it's possible people did miracles, and if they did it, we have to know how they did it, you know? But that, 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 that's not necessarily... Well, in, in our, in, in, in doesn't it, God warn us in, in Deuteronomy or one of the uh, chapters that uh, uh, you, don't be, you don't fall for, uh, for miracles, omens. Oh, yeah, omens. oh, I yeah. Mean, you yes. know, even if it happens. Now, um, that was all we spoke about last time. <laughs> Apparently, we're not going to get uh, through the 11 pages that I prepared here. Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, we'll we'll do we'll do we'll do some other we'll do another uh, another round of this. Um, now let let's uh, let's look at some some little excerpts from the Torah and ask ourselves the question: What would the human author write if they were actually do, writing this? Um, huh? Yeah. Sorry. Now, um, if if the Torah was authored by human or humans or a collection of humans, whatever, uh, they would have to be some of the greatest geniuses the world has ever seen like the greatest geniuses and greatest literary artists or greatest uh, moral systemizers or uh, organizers of law that the world's ever seen. Uh, especially because the ideas that are espoused uh, in the Torah, regardless of when they were written, were written at a time where they're very much ahead of the curve, so to speak. Uh, very progressive. Uh, like, uh, you know, the, the systems of morality that 
are today commonplace were at the time of its writing very, very uh, innovative. So, so, the, so the author would have to be one of the great geniuses that's ever lived. And uh, yet, we find things that a human author would never write. I'll give you some examples here. Now, this we read a couple of uh, months ago. In the book of Leviticus, it talks about the Shemitah. So now in Israel, if you go to Israel today, and you go to the farms, you'll find that all the farms are lying fallow. Every single farm in Israel, almost exclusively every single farm in Israel, there's no farmers, there's no harvesting, there's no crop, there's no planting, there's no plowing, there's no nothing. And you'll say to yourself that this is insane. And the reason why is because this, you know, you're like, Steve's like, what? Well, there's, okay, let me, I guess here. And this is because. They have have farms, but no farms in Israel. Farms, but no farms this year. Oh, this year. It's only this year. And it's every seven years. So 2008, 2015, 2022, 2029, and going all the way back to the time of memorial. So even the kibbutzes too, right? All the kibbutzes are, are, are off. Right? All, the, all the farmers are off. What does it eat? I don't know, man. Let's see what the Torah says. Where's it come from? It says as follows. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its produce. But... In the seventh year, a Sabbath of solemn rest shall be in the land. Your field you shall not sow, your vineyard you shall not prune. That which grows by itself you shall not reap, and the grapes of vineyard you shall not gather. That's the basic idea of Shemitah. It's repeated a few other times. It kind of mirrors the idea of six days of the week and the day of Shabbat. Six days you work, Shabbat you don't work. Six years you work, Shabbat you don't work. So presumably you store something during the year you don't work so you can eat, because so you, you got to eat. Because otherwise you'll die. Right. So I assume that's what they do. They stockpile some. Well, let, let, well let's let's first see what what the law what, what the law says, yeah. and then what the law says to answer your question. Okay. Yes, in the land of Israel. That's right. Um, so in the United States, you're good to go. Outside the land of Israel, you're good to go. And we'll talk about what they do today. Now, so what does that mean? Plowing, planting, harvesting for an entire year is off is off limits. Now, what happens? Um, now we can actually, um, nowadays we find that it's actually very healthy for land to take a year off. It's very good for the land to kind of breathe a little bit. It's very healthy for the future crops, which someone could say, hey, maybe the author of the Torah is just one of the great um, scientists uh, way beyond the curve is able to know that it's a very healthy thing for the land to take a year off. And even, I think, in other places, uh, there are Farmers that are um, uh, knowledgeable of this fact as well, and therefore they take they take a year off as well. Uh, however, the reason why it's maybe not so logical is because it says, if you were to do that, you would say, well, you know what? Let's split the land into seven groups, and then we'll rotate which year you take off. That way, we'll always have some produce being being uh, worked upon, some land being worked upon during the year. However, what it says is that all the farmers in the same year. Everyone's off. So there's no rotation. Everyone is off now the year 2015. Uh, now, these remember, these are cultures that are entirely dependent on agriculture for their survival. You don't know if you, you eat what you grow. Now, today, you know, 98% of the people are not in agriculture. But at that time, people had their farm. That's what you ate. And then the Torah says, well, what about Steve's question? And that's the next verse. Let's continue. And if you, you'll say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we may not plant nor gather in our produce. Good question, right? 
Every seven going years, going it's kind of very relevant. Going a long diet. Huh? Well, let's see what it says here. <laughs> God says, I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce for three years. And you will plant in the eighth year, eat the produce until the ninth year, until her produce comes in, and you shall eat the old produce. What are things like this? You know what God says? What the author says? You don't have to plant in the sixth, seventh year. Plant the sixth year. Sixth year, you'll have enough for the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth. You'll have a bumper crop. You'll have enough food for six, seven, and eight. Like manna, didn't manna just come for six days? Or and then not, not on Saturday, that's right. You got, you got a double portion on Friday. Portion. But that's what the book says. Now imagine you were the human authorship, right? And you knew that you, you had intended people to actually observe this. First of all, if you did not have the power, the levers to command your blessing to make that this actually happen, you're at the risk of people actually following you, and then at the end of the seventh year, everyone's dead. And then your, your dream of your religion is not going to really be, you know, be completed. Not only that, if there was no bumper crop, and every year during the seventh year people were starving and dying, what would people know about the book? They would know that it's not what it claims to be. Isn't it possible there could be a series could be a time frame where there wasn't a bumper crop? Well, I, that's not my point. My point is, is that I don't know historically if there were bumper crops. I don't have a, a list uh, detailing the crops and the outputs of the crops over the years. But that's not the point. The point is, is that let's start from the other side. Let's start from the authorship of the Torah. If you were going to write the Torah with the intention of people actually following it, you would never put in such a clause with such a prediction. Because that, it's insane to do that. It, first of all, so easily falsifiable if there's never a bumper crop in the sixth year. Number two, it's not reasonable. It's, it's an unreasonable demand of the people, and it's going, to, it's going to likely exterminate your people. We know people have observed this. People in modern-day Israel, ever since people got back to Israel, they've been observing it. Now, today in Israel, you go there, they actually they import uh, from outside of Israel. Uh, they have other ways to actually deal with this issue. Um, things are fine, but you know, in Israel today, if you if you wanted to be, if you're a farmer in Israel, you, if you worked the land, that food's not kosher. One of the, one of the, it's really interesting. It's like, you're, you're, it's grain, but it's not kosher grain. It's the only way for, like, grain or produce to not be kosher is, is, uh, is, is if it's from Israel that in a field that was worked upon the seventh year. Oh, well, it, it's kind of self-enforcing because... It's not the law, is it? It's not the law, but if you... Let, let's assume you're a farmer that does do work. Yeah. Okay, where are, you, where are you selling your produce to? Who's buying your produce? Sell it abroad. Yeah. You could sell abroad, so that you could do. Yeah. Uh, but you cannot sell it locally because none of the local mass buyers of produce are going to buy it because all of them want to have kosher certification. They're buying the food. Right, so they, so they buy, buy either from Arab farmers or they buy from outside the land. So there are some farmers, there's still um, farmers that do do that and sell abroad, by the way. If you, this, you have to be very vigilant if you're a, a kosher consumer of, I know uh, one of my cousins lives in Canada in 2009, or 2008, 2009, uh, he was in a supermarket in Toronto. And he sees all these beautiful peppers, bell peppers. From Israel. Fantastic. Right? Well, actually, those, that's not kosher. 
because that was obviously some, one of the uh, one of the um, opportunistic, so to, so to speak, farmers that says, oh, "I'll sell it out. I'll sell it abroad." Okay, and the, you're actually passing off non-kosher produce, and then he saw it in, in his local. So he could, but it, it's okay for a Jewish farmer in Israel. For the, to sell that pro- produce where, where a Gentile could eat it. Well, not really, because not only is the food not kosher, there's also a prohibition against planting, harvesting. Yes. Okay. So. Right. But there are things that you're not planting it this year, but it's growing because it was there from last year. Oh, yeah, so that's it. But, but then, but you, but you're, well, you're allowed to eat it. You can't harvest it. That's right. So what, what you actually do is you have to leave your land open. I mean, you, you, uh, you cannot lock your field down. So, so deal, deal, you, have to, you have to let anyone come into your field. So you can't stockpile anything like that. Okay, but that was a violation, the fact that those peppers were in Canada. Whoever sent that from Israel was... Well, there was obviously someone who was not Shemitah observant. Okay. Um, so he was probably working the field, and that food is not kosher. Or it could have been Palestinian because they still would blame um, Yeah, well, the, the Palestinians would never ship it because it's much, it's much... The only reason why someone would actually ship produce to Canada is because, and especially at that time, was because... That was because they were not Shemitah observant, and they have nothing to do with it in Israel. Because in Israel, in Israel, it, w- it wouldn't fly because no one wants non-kosher produce in Israel. Because the vast, or the, even if it's not for the majority, but probably the majority of people there are, are kosher observant. But even if it was a minority, you can you can try to sell your produce or your your products to a population yeah. that forty percent of them won't touch it. So you just buy the kosher stuff. Okay, now if they did produce during this. No. Because it was not. No. Yeah, and the, the Talmud does discuss what happened. There were times where, where the the Romans made very punitive taxes. You know, Hadrian after he destroyed uh, Israel and Beitar and the Jewish people, he made very very uh, punitive taxes against the Jewish people. What did they do then on Shemitah? They have to give grain to Rome whilst Rome would come and slaughter everyone. So then they made uh, they made an exception that because it's otherwise the Jewish people will actually be exterminated. Uh, there were people allowed to work the fields in order to pay off the tax that was the collective tax of the Jewish people. Um, so there were, there were there were some exceptions to that, but the land is still fine. You know, the land is not a, is not someone that the land has become not kosher because because of that. But either way, I think we have to really question like some, things like that, and there are other examples. Uh, there are. It's predictions, but it's also laws that, uh, to us, may seem nonsensical and counterproductive, but certainly to a group of authors that are trying to uh, perpetuate a hoax and a fabrication, they wouldn't do something uh, like that that's, A, very difficult to observe, and B, easily, uh, um, verifiably uh, falsifiable. Because if you don't have the bumper crop, and uh, uh, year after year, there's no bumper crop, and people observe this meat down, they're dying left, right, and center, well, then the Torah's not true. Now, remember, I'm not trying to say that I have evidence uh, of, of, of the sixth year always being bumper crops. I don't have that evidence because I don't have any evidence about crop uh, production in, uh, in, ancient, uh, in ancient Israel. Uh, however, what I do have is the fact that we know people were observing it. We have documentation of that fact. And we know that people did not... Uh, drop the Torah in mass when the Torah was not living up to what, it, what its prediction. Um, I think there are other examples of mitzvahs that no human intelligence would actually um, advocate. 
Uh, for example, laws of shotness, laws of the red heifer. These are things that are such detailed, so bizarre. Like you have to, to come up with this on your own, a completely red cow that doesn't have any hairs that are not red. Then the, there was no work done to it. You take it, you, you slaughter it in Jerusalem, you burn it outside of Jerusalem, you take the ashes, you mix it with water and certain uh, herbs and grasses, and you take that potion and throw it onto people, and they become pure. What? Is that something that really some intelligence, some human intelligence will come up with? Very, very, very bizarre. And to us, it's bizarre as well because it's, it's a mitzvah that's designed for us to not understand. But I think that we have to question whether or not a human author would write that. I'll give you one more example before we, before we, before we wrap up. Uh, I, don't want, I don't want to go over 12 o'clock. So we'll, we'll stop here. But either way, I think that um, it's important for us... Uh, independently and as a group to investigate this information. It's very important for us as Jews to know why we can say with certainty or at least, at least with a lot of confidence that our religion and our history and our traditions have been based upon very good, firm, and logical and reasonable and rational foundations. Especially when belief in the Torah as being divine is one of the core elements of Jewish, uh, of Jew- the Jewish faith. And even if we believe it, it's important for us to know that there's a lot of evidence to base it, to, to base it and there's no evidence to, to contradict it. And we have to also realize that if this is not something that we can do uh, without having our heightened um, uh, sensitivity. Uh, and the, Because we have to realize that we have inherent biases. This means that we have skin in the game. And it may be very unsettling for us if, if this were indeed to be true. Uh, and it's not a surprise that there have been a lot of efforts to try to call into question the legitimacy and accuracy of the Torah. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why is that true? Why has there been such sloppy journalism and sloppy science to try to question the legitimacy and accuracy and accuracy of the Torah? Why? Um, why would why would this area not be treated like any other area where the facts and the evidence ought to speak for themselves? I think the answer is because there's a lot at stake here, but on both sides of the uh, of the issue, and it's not an easy issue to uh, uh, to to really mediate, but it's a very important one. It's an important one because Maimonides tells us he quotes the Talmud that we have to kind of believe this, and if. We could have just say, oh, I believe because I don't want to get myself into too much trouble, or we could really investigate it and really do the, do the research. And that's, that's, a very, that's a very good way to do it. That's very fair. You know, I think that's incumbent upon us. And something that is so central to our lives, it's incumbent upon us to really ask these questions and investigate the material on its own merit. And if we do that, and we have, there's, more, there's more evidence that, that, that we have collected here, um, we hopefully will come to the conclusion that it seems very reasonable and logical to accept the Torah as what it claims to be. And that is the, the, the work, the divine work of God, and Moses is the scribe, because there's a lot of evidence to, to point to that fact. And thus, the Jewish mission, the Jewish people, and the uh, religion that we have spent so long upholding teaching our children, spending so much time studying and, and practicing and observing and growing has not all been for naught. And that's a very comforting thought as well. So either way, um, we, got, we, 
dipped our toe a little bit into this discussion, and I, I, we had a, I had a great time, grand old time doing it. Yeah. I hope it was a meaningful discussion for y'all as well. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Next week, we're off. The following week, we're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah. It's a couple weeks before Rosh Hashanah. So we have a lot to discuss about that. Uh, and I look forward to uh, continuing this important discussion at some later date. And thank you again. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And next week is the Temple Beth Torah open house at 11 a.m. We're going to have a free concert and lunch. So if